everybody, and welcome to this episode of Scorched Justice, the podcast, where I'm covering the murders of Jessica Lynn Chambers and Ming Ching Cho. And this is the 10th episode, y'all, and the conclusion of the first season of Scorched Justice. And for today's episode, I'm going to be answering some questions y'all had as the fans and the listeners, but I want to first introduce the guest I have in the studio with me, and it's Mr. Jim Chapman. Jim, hello. Hey, how are you, Woody? All right, y'all, if you listen to Real Life, Real Crime, you know that Jim Chapman is the producer for Real Life, Real Crime, my other podcasts, and now he is the supervising sound editor for Scorch Justice, and the Vision Podcast Studios is co-producing Scorch Justice. So looking forward to working with you, Jim, on Scorch Justice as much as we do real life, real crime. I'm excited. It's, it's a huge opportunity for, for uh, Envision and myself, and we're just tickled pink. Well, if y'all ever got to listen to us in the past on Local Leaders, the podcast, which Jim has and, and all that, you know that we click well, and uh, Jim does wonders with the microphone and the music and everything else. So, But with that, being said, again, this is the last episode of the first season of Scorch Justice, and from now on, Jim will be the supervising sound editor and Vision Podcast Studios will be co-producing our show. And just so you know, you're going to hear it here first, our first episode of season two of Scorch Justice will drop the first week of July of 2022, so just in a couple of weeks, y'all. And I'm not going to tell you the case yet because we're going to do a special show announcement probably the week after you hear this. And I'll explain to you what the case is and why I chose it. And, yes, it is another horrible case of scorched justice. And this one's going to cause a lot of, lot of feathers to get ruffled. But that being said, we're going to get down to business. Today, uh, I compiled a list of questions from listeners. Uh, one of the, my favorite one who, who sent in the most is Joshua Ebarb. He's a great lifer, um, very knowledgeable in, in what he does. So, Josh, uh, Joshua, thank you. And to all you listeners, thank you for the questions that you sent in. And what I'm going to do is I'll have Jim read them. I really haven't, I haven't gone. I just scanned over them briefly, and I'm, I'm going to let Jim read them, and I'll just tell you what I think off the top of my mind. The first question on the list is, how did Jessica wind up outside the car? Okay, that's a good question. The accelerant was, was detected inside the car. Um, the If you remember, y'all, during the episodes, I told you the only thing that wasn't burnt was the bottom of her feet, pretty much. And so I'm thinking that they probably doused her with the gasoline and set her on fire, and she ran out of the car, and they took off. That would be my guess because uh, evidently the tops of her shoes burn off and she was barefooted. You'd be real hard fucking pressed to for me to be standing outside a car and you come up with me with a five-gallon can of gasoline. I'm going to just stand there and let you douse it on me. Now, if I'm down, laid down in that seat, a guy runs up to the window, douses you with gas, then and throws a match, well, shit, you're going to run down the street too uh, if you're on fire. 
No doubt about it. To me, it's one of the most disturbing parts of that case is just imagining it's, it's uh, being on fire like that. Right. right. Being on fire and knowing, yes. hey, I'm burning to death. Yes. I'm burning to death. Did Quentin Tellus actually know Jessica Chambers was burning to death when he called and left a voicemail on her phone? Very good point. A very good question. Thank you for um, sending it in. I absolutely believe that he did know and that he used the phone call to her cell phone to say, hey, uh, I can't get together with you tonight. My girlfriend's coming into town. That's then he, you know, he's just covering it up. And to further that, I, I think, Jim, uh, is the fact that he immediately deletes all contacts, all information from Jessica from his phone that night, and, and right after he makes that phone call. Yeah, he was covering his ass is yeah, what he was doing. Exactly. I mean, that there's no other reason for it. I mean, prisons are full of dummies. It's hard to catch a smart criminal. And, and if I just set you on fire and nobody knew about it, I'd call your phone number, too. That's right. Uh, why didn't Jerry King turn it, turn the keys in that he found immediately? Uh, he had to know that they were from a very recent crime scene. Right. Okay, so, y'all, Jerry King, the I don't think I touched on him that much, but he was uh, used in the first trial. He said he was pushing his baby in a stroller down the street and um, saw some keys in the ditch. And I believe the keys had Jessica Chambers' father's automotive shop's key ring on it. And he said he gave the keys to the baby to play with. And then later on, um, he thought, "Mm, you know what, this might be related to Jessica. And so he called the cops out. Now, this is where the scorch part comes in. The cops should have came out and taken it like they did um, and taken it evidence. But what they did was they had Jerry King go back to the street and place the keys back in the ditch. And they took a picture of the keys like they were actually had collected from the ditch themselves. Defense attorney will have a field day with. And why he didn't do it immediately, who knows? I mean, Jerry King had a long, extensive criminal history. I think he was just out of jail when this happened. Uh, Maybe he was afraid of the cops. I don't know. Yeah, it probably had some trust issues there yeah. with them. You know, had a criminal history, and yeah. the last per- people you want to involve are the police. Right, right. And <laughs> he, was, he definitely said he was no stranger to Panola, Panola County uh, Sheriff's Office. And um, like in the first trial, they ran the DNA and uh, did Quinn get, did not get Quinn's DNA off of it or whatever, and Jerry King wasn't a very believable witness. They didn't even use him in the second trial. Yeah. So, but thank you for the question. Next question Did Jessica's friend Keisha possibly have anything to do with it? What do you think? I think so. She was awful uh, close to the situation. She knew, to me, she knew a lot of facts uh, that maybe maybe she wouldn't have known any other way. Yeah. The one thing, to your point on that is, it was her and Jessica and Quinn that rode around or busted a loop that morning and mm-hmm. smoked a joint. And the, the her story was conflicting on... Her story and Quinn's story were conflicting on who got dropped up first and who got picked up first. I don't really know that that matters in the grand scheme of things, but it was her 21st birthday. And 
Jessica was taking her out to Memphis that night, and that's why when she went to the gas station, the, the gas station attendant who got hung out by social media, when he came out and released the tapes, they thought he did it, right? But he um, he commented, he said, Jessica, you normally only got a dollar or two worth of gas at a time, but she yeah, filled her yeah. car up, and he was like, why are you doing that? And she said, because I'm taking Keisha out to party tonight in Memphis, which, y'all, I just drove through there last week. Um, it's not even probably... 40 minutes to Memphis from there. Yeah. But it, as far as her doing it, the, uh, I don't know. I don't know that the, I mean, certainly she has a lot of knowledge. Maybe she has more knowledge of, uh, uh, of who Eric was. Yeah. But, um, and I hadn't thought about this before. I think that Eric was in town, he, you know, Eric was two hours away in Monroe. Right. And I think if he was in town, he might even, road to bust the loop with him or whatever. Maybe she was intimidated into being quiet about who Eric was. Yeah. I mean, he didn't just happen to show up. At, uh, I mean, it's not like Quinn called him and said, oh, I'm going to do this in five minutes. You're going to be here. He was already there. So unless, I mean, they rode around and smoked weed. Mm, chances are that two guys and two girls, pretty good. Yeah. Speculation, but yep. I mean, it's interesting. Very good point. So if Eric Hill was there, then how come nobody saw him or at least will admit they saw him? It goes right back to what I was just talking to you. Now, it, let's just say, and I have no direct knowledge, but let's just say Keisha knows he was there. But shit, and she also knows he's a killer and Quinn's a killer. I and mean, why Why would you come forward? I, I wouldn't. Yeah, why would you come forward and say, oh, yeah, uh, yeah Quinn and, and Eric Right, or she was saying, Eric, I saw Eric with Quentin. Well, fuck, they they can't arrest, they can't find their ass with both hands, and much less get anybody arrested. The family members of Eric, the the sister, the name tattooed on her hand, who lived there, and who they're not gonna write her out. She's got his name tattooed on her hand, right? Why would she say, oh yeah, you know what, you're looking for my brother Eric? That's right. Uh, I mean, the, uh, I think there's a multitude of reasons: fear, and not wanting to get involved. Um, maybe they got dirt on you. The, 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 I mean, maybe that a person was more involved than in it. So maybe there were four of them when it, when she got burned to death. I mean, that's all speculation, y'all, but you can bet your ass he was there. Then, and I don't have any direct knowledge, but I, everything points to it because I'm telling you, there's no way Quentin Tellis burned her by himself and got out of the area. I've been there, I've stood there on his heels on that back hair on road is no way. In your experience, vast experience in law enforcement, I mean, I would imagine it's it's not uncommon that when a crime is committed, there's fear of people to come forward right. about that individual, right? Especially running in that, you know, that crime-ridden life that they were running it. Yeah, well, the, you get a couple things. Like, even Jessica was afraid, had told her mama she was afraid for her life because people thought she was snitching because she had just gone to a rehab and she got out and people were getting busted. And they knew her dad worked as the mechanic for the sheriff's office. He was an ex-con himself. And, and then he 
open up his own place, but he still was was affiliated with the sheriff's office. You know, snitches get stitches, right? And, mm. and the this is a murder case, man. And, I mean, a girl was burnt. Burnt. Yeah. You're still talking about in Louisiana. I've said the whole time this case isn't about racism, and it isn't. It's about who killed who. But you know what? It could have very easily got made about racism had person uh, had Quentin Tellips been arrested off the bat. Who knows what kind of Ku Klux Klan guy would have came out of the backwoods and put a bullet in him. I mean, there's there's all kinds of That's a good re- reasons why that um, people wouldn't have said it. But but you're right, Jim. The thing is, on on any cases like this, and it's like on the, on the Justice Four cases. I tell you, once people make arrest, once you make an arrest, and people know that guy or that girl's not getting out of jail, they got a million dollar bond or whatever. Other other witnesses come for it. It always happens, and they were scared. And they they were like, holy shit! And they, I mean, these assholes, Marty Fife's up here couldn't get anybody. And why am I going to go put my life in jeopardy? Yeah, I saw Eric. I know who the hell Eric is. Eric, you know, runs with Quentin. His Eric's sister lives there. I saw him there that day, but I ain't saying shit. They they questioned over four hundred something people named Eric or Derek in Panola County and yeah. missed somehow missed. The tattoo on his sister's hand and and this guy. Unbelievable. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, it really is. Hey, y'all, you want to save on your grocery bill? Every plate is 25% cheaper than grocery shopping. Try America's Best Value Meal Kit for delicious dinners that don't break the bank. At first, I thought meal kits had to be expensive, but it turns out every plate is more affordable than groceries. Their quality ingredients come pre-proportion to help you save money and reduce food waste. You know, like that bag of spinach you throw out every week. Skip the store and let every plate plan, shop, and deliver everything you need to cook a delicious meal at a consistently low price. Y'all, I've been using it for over two years, and I love it. The last meal we cooked together, Cindy and I, was the Southwest Pork Flautas. It came with zesty cream and even fresh pico de gallo. And it prepared in less than 30 minutes. Every plate's lower price point is the differentiating factor between them and all the other meal plans, y'all. They're cheaper, they're better, and I love it. Try every plate for just $1.79 per meal by going to everyplate.com and entering code SCORCHED179. Try every plate for just $1.79 per meal by going to everyplate.com and entering code SCORCHED179. Y'all gotta give them a shot. Try it. You're gonna love it. You save time, you save money, and if you like, like me, I'm a foodie. You'll love the large selection of items you get to choose from, and they deliver it straight to your door. He was burned alive. That's it's one. You know, you kill somebody that way. You nobody. You know, that'll strike a lot of fear in a lot of people. Absolutely right. I didn't. I got goosebumps. I didn't think about that. But you're absolutely right. It's not like. Um, Mandy or Ming Show, who was who was tortured a little bit and then stabbed to death, that, and that's bad enough. Yeah. But you set another human being on fire and you leave their ass on fire. Now look, you don't just throw gas on a person and leave them; they magically combust. You actually had to do the lighter or light whatever and throw it on that person. You know, you, she's begging for her life. She's, you know, even if she's got gas in her eyes or mouth, she's still going to be begging for her life. And that person lit a match and threw it on her and watched her burn. So as far as coming forward and giving her information, 
even on a regular homicide, hey, this motherfucker will burn you to death, literally. Then yeah. the why wouldn't they do it to me or my family? Yeah. You know, or my kids, whatever, whatever it may be. So I think fear, and I think the fear, and I think the 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 investigators being so scorched, this case being so messed up from the beginning that the people, if anybody else had knowledge like this about Eric, they they didn't come forth because they had fear of reprisals against them and they had a fear that rightfully so that Panola County and the Mississippi Bureau of Investigations and everybody else that had this case fucked it up and and couldn't handle their business. Yeah, and you say it yourself all the time that uh you know the advantage to uh like these hashtag justice four cases that you do is they're talking to you and they're not talking to the police right. and you're able to get more information that way. It's true. People will tell an individual like me, a third party, when they can remain anonymous, they'll tell me a whole lot more. They they just, for whatever reasons, they're not comfortable going to the cops, whether yeah. they have their bias against them or they think they're incompetent or whatever. But you can, you better, you know, let's take it back a second and on the scorch part because it pisses me off so bad. All I have to do is go fucking pull Eric's phone records. Why didn't they do that? Now that they know the the the. The follow-up part, the, the uh, follow-up that Eric has now tried to alibi out. He went against Quentin in Louisiana. Then he tried to alibi him out. They found out half the right is Quentin Tellis's and half's his. And then he they confront him on it, and he admits that he lies. Go run his fucking cell phone records. He yeah. did it to everybody else. Go run Eric's cell phone records. If you put him there, boom, case over. But, again, it's scorched. Totally. Um, okay, who was the middle-aged black man at the scene while the car was burning and Jessica was dying? Where did he come from? Did he walk or did he have a vehicle nearby, and had he been in the woods? Very good question. I could tell you uh, he was not in the woods, and uh, I'm pretty sure I covered this on one of the episodes. The Okay, so th- that's very suspicious. Now, I'm going to digress a little bit. My favorite people, right, the volunteer firefighters. I love them. God bless them. But, you know, sometimes they get a little overzealous. Uh, like I told you, the the old man I rolled up on had shot himself in the chest with a shotgun, and I could literally see the grass through the hole in his chest. There's no way this guy was alive. And the volunteer fireman runs up, and he's like, oh, I think I got a pulse. And they got to work on him the whole time. I'm not making light of it. But the the so this was a volunteer fireman that saw this black male in – uh, the crowd standing there staring, you know, he felt staring in a very ominous way and he told him you can't be there or whatever and the guy didn't say anything for a second and then he left and he said something about him changing shirts or whatever but y'all, that was brought up in the first trial never brought up in the second trial because it was established this guy was a neighbor from right down the street on Heron Road and when, when all the cops were showing up and believe me, like I said if you want to if you're going down a Heron Road, you got a reason to go down. When, when the cops show up and they can see fire blazing in the distance, and, it, and it, this fire was massive, Jim. I'm telling you, these trees for 40 yards around, big pine trees are still burning up on the bottom. It's, the, the fire was huge. Uh, so then you got all the pumper trucks and everything run up there. The, this guy's wife was actually like, go up there and find out what's happening. And, and so <laughs> he was like, all right. So he walked up, and they, they were able to prove that. So this guy had nothing to do with it. Um other than he was a looky Lou, is what I call him, uh, and he went up to see what happened. Yeah, and, and you're going to get that. Even 
you know, if an ambulance goes down my street in my neighborhood, I'm walking outside That's looking right. where it's pulling yeah, up yeah. and or driving past a car wreck. Yeah. You're going to slow down and look, right? That's and, right. It's just the way it is. But yeah, he had nothing to do with it. Um, but the, the defense used that to their advantage in trial one because it, it was established that, uh, I don't know if I ever covered that, it was established that that person or whoever was the volunteer fireman was that saw this guy, they showed him a, a photo lineup of a six pack with Quentin Tellison and he said no. So it turned out to be a neighbor down the street. Yeah. Yeah. Well, good answer to that question. And he brought up the woods. It seemed like when you were talking about and discussing this case, one of the things that blew your mind the most out of all of this was the fact that the police did not, uh, I guess you call it, cornered off the woods and did a search in the woods for whoever could have done this. Absolutely. I will never understand that as long as I live. The, the guy says... Um, when he's questioned on the stand, he only considered the crime scene to be right around the car, right? And that's where they found the the lighters and whatever. But the the fire, I'm again, I'm telling y'all, the fire was thirty or forty yards past where the vehicle was in this embankment. You could still see the burnt marks on the base of these pine trees to this day, and it goes way into the woods. But that's not even the worst of the problem. Where the car was in on the embankment like that, she came. From the woods from fucking across the road. Yeah. So that, that doubles the size of your crime scene, and they never searched it. That, and when they never searched that night, what they should have done is rope that bitch off and wait for daylight, all right? Not let anybody in, period, once the car is out. You know, uh, the coroner could have done their thing. Well, she was all gone in the hospital. But the I, th- that way you don't lose anything. If you don't have the big portable lights like most offices do and you can't light up the scene, but regardless, you should have rubbed it off. That, that road is insignificant. People could drive around another way. Didn't need to do it. But you got her coming off from across the road on fire. The car's on this side of the road on fire and there's fire on the side of the road. They should have searched everything. The guy admits that his crime scene was only directly around the car. Then this, they put their big wig on who ran the investigation from out of town. This fucker wasn't even in town. And he gets on there and he says, oh, yeah, I'm the one that told him to tow the uh, car. You know, they towed the car. Nobody even followed. They didn't know whether he didn't know what tow company took it. They had no kind of log of when the car was moved or anything, and they just put it out in an impound yard. Well, shit, that's not protecting any evidence or anything. But, but to make matters worse, when he's questioned on the stand about the crime scene, first he's like, oh, I don't know. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure they searched it. And they're like, yeah, you sure? When did that happen? Can you produce to him when it happened? So I think the FBI and, and my guy searched it. Then they questioned him again. He was like, um, well, maybe they did. And he said, I really don't know. And it, you're the big dog running the show from out of town. You should fucking retire, dude. Uh, you should turn your shit in and be ashamed of yourself. And But I understand it because I, I, I've seen it before. It's the small department complex where this guy's like, yeah, I can run this from – I'm in Gulf Shores, Alabama, and I can run this over the phone. Fuck you. You're supposed to have your people train. This guy that ran it, supposed to be their evidence officer, had never worked a crime scene before. I mean, it's just crazy. Scorch, 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 scorch. The woods, I mean, even if they had gone back, oh, he said, he said, I think they maybe went back two or three days later and searched it. What the fuck good does that do? If I'm the bad guy and I left some, I'm going to go back and get it. Number two, a defense attorney is going to have a field day, and there's no chain of custody. They can say, oh, that was planted by my client's worst enemy. 
You know, I mean, yeah. so it was useless. You only it's like that photograph on a murder scene. You only get that one shot. You know, sometimes yeah. you can get lucky and you can go back and find some. But guess what? The the you may find something, but the defense is going to have a field day on challenging that it wasn't planted or whatever, right? Or that it's even related to the crime. You've said many times that when you were a Livingston Parish Sheriff's detective, uh, you would have some cases that you would go on that case. Maybe a baby was kidnapped or killed. Uh, you would go on that case, and the first thing you would think is, oh, shit, we're about to have a media thunderstorm over here. So in your mind, you're thinking – uh, we have to cross every I, dot every T, call Willie Graves, whatever. We called it an ape, an acute political emergency. <laughs> I love it. Uh, exactly. And um, this case with someone being burned to death, I cannot believe those officers, uh, it didn't run through their mind. This is going to be a pretty big deal. Maybe we need to almost overdo it. You know, I never thought about that. The, the, yeah. Absolutely right. I guess I never thought about that because I, I can't fathom them not doing it right, right. especially but the uh, a media sensational case like this you get a fortunately it's just like the um girl that was with her boyfriend that we missed him so long recently a pretty young blind girl i mean that's what sells in the media right jessica lynn chambers the same thing and lord knows that if it had come back a white on black thing in mississippi then they would have made it about race but you right why wouldn't you treat it this like an acute political mercy or a once in a lifetime case it's like they went the opposite way right it's like they they, they did the, the exact opposite of what, everything they did was the exact opposite of what they should have done it, yeah it seemed like the most obvious thing you would do at the beginning even from someone that's not an investigator is uh okay we need to check those woods because this is tough terrain and i doubt anybody was able to run out of here and get away and and the, all the witnesses say she came out of the woods on fire yeah what the fuck what if the bad guy's still in the woods with a flamethrower you never know because <laughs> right. you didn't look that's right you know? and very, shit, very quentin tell us could have been there How and when did Jessica meet Quentin Tellus, and is it possible her death was gang-related? That's a couple good questions. Jessica had started messing with weed and stuff after her brother got killed. And um, then before that, she was the cheerleader and the athlete and everything else. And, you know, she just was going through a tough time. That was Her brother got killed in a vehicle accident, and that was her, like, ride or die, her, her best friend. Yeah. And, so they said that's when she started slipping. That she slipped to the point and using drugs and stuff that she actually went to seek help and to in treatment a Christian place that the that I told you about earlier. But the deal was before that she had, she was actually dating a gang member, another guy, black guy who's actually was in prison at the time that she was burned up, and he was straight up gang. Believe you wouldn't believe the small towns throughout this country. I'm not talking about even like cities the size of Denver Springs. I'm talking about small towns like this, like Cortland, that have gangs in it. And she was dating a gang member before. I don't think it's it's gang related. We know she sold weed. I mean, it was openly admitted. Keisha even said, and that kind of throws some shade back on Keisha like you were talking earlier. Keisha testified in court. And yep, she sold weed every day. She had to be getting her weed from somebody. Or maybe it's still a gang connection or a gang affiliation. I think her death... The cover-up by the burning and her intentional death was because Quintellis robbed her because he knew she was going to have a pocket full of money to take Keisha out for her birthday night that night. And it's the same thing he turned around and did to Ming, Show, and 
Monroe. She had a couple thousand dollars in her account, and he tortured her until she gave up the PIN number. And while he's torturing her, he calls the bank and enters the PIN number to make sure it's the right one. She gave him, obviously, she gave him a false one at first, and then he ends up stabbing her to death. So I don't think it's, I think it, it's Quintellus related, right? And, and he's just a punk ass, thieving, murdering bitch. John Hamm leads an all-star cast in The Big Lie, a riveting new Audible original. The story takes place in 1953 during the Cold War when hysteria spread throughout the country over the fear of communism. Hamm plays FBI Special Agent Jack Bergen, who will stop at nothing to shut down production of a film being made in New Mexico by three members of the Hollywood Blacklist. A remote mining town becomes a powder keg of racial and political tensions during the production of the film with the FBI lighting the fuse. The Big Lie is an explosive tale of conspiracy, betrayal, and temptation. This cinematic, audible original is presented in seven episodes with a lush, period-specific score by renowned musician David Mansfield and features top-notch performances from a stellar cast. The cast also includes Kate Maher, Anna de la Riguera, Bradley Whitford, John Slatterly, Gina Carlo Esposito, and David Strathairn. The Big Lie is created by John Mankiewicz. Visit audible.com slash the big lie. Listen on Audible. They had only met like a couple weeks before, like two weeks before her murder. And he, according to him, they had sex at least one time. Uh, uh, that's not proven, y'all. Now, there's text messages where he it's proven where he texts her about getting some booty or whatever he called it. And, and uh, he says that they had sex one time with the seat laid back over on the side of the house. And he even showed investigators where that was. But he, she, she met him through, it might have been Keisha, it, it was through friends locally. And she actually, believe it or not, sold Quintellus weed. Quintellus, if he did it for the money, then he, he might have said, hey, come over here. And this happens a lot of times. People get ripped, is what they call it. Hey, come, come over here and sell me a pound of weed. Uh, then when, when they show up, you're going to rob them for the weed and whatever money they got, right? But at some point, she had to get the money to go to, to Memphis that night. He knows she was going to Memphis, uh, and he may have called her over for some dope. But that they were friends. According to him, it turned into a sexual thing. According to the text, at least he was trying to have sex with her. Don't can't say that was proven. The, the car seat being laid back, I don't know. Maybe he might have he might have tried to have sex with her that night and accidentally choked her out. I don't know. Just unbelievable that uh, that you could just set somebody on fire like that. Yeah, and wow, man, special, that takes a special kind special, of asshole. Special, yeah, exactly. Special mindset and and the special disregard for life. Right? Yes, and, uh, um, the fact that you do it and do it over nothing, over, over pocket full of dollars and maybe a little weed, or, or maybe. Um, you were trying to have sex with her, and she refused. And that's why the car seat was laid down. That's my, that's my other theory on it. He chokes her out. She she refuses. He chokes her out and he freaks out. He thinks she's dead. She, he calls Eric, gets Eric to follow him over there, and gets 
get the can, they light her on fire. Holy shit, she's not dead. Even if you're knocked out and you get lit on fire, she jumps up out of her car, runs to the woods, and they haul ass. Yeah, it's the same MO that he used on Mandy or Ming Shao, y'all, they called her Mandy in Louisiana, is was straight up for the robbery and ends proven. Yeah. Know, uh, him and the one thing this asshole does is he lies, 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 and it changes the story. Every time you hit him with some new truth that you know, he changes the story. And on Mandy's case, now, Jessica being burned up, horrible. Uh, Mandy being tortured, uh, 30 plus something stab wounds, most of which were superficial, just like an inch or so in, just to try to get the numbers out of them. But then think about her mindset. She, she's thinking, He's like, bitch, I'm gonna cut you, you know, and, and and makes it. This came from this came from Eric. Yeah. This is Eric gave these details to the cops. They believed him because he gave details that nobody else knew. That nobody they didn't release to the media, like on, on stab wounds and the different things uh, or whatever. So you torture them, and this poor girl is, is finally at some point is like, you know, okay, I'm gonna give you the number, hoping. Yeah. Like that. Yeah. He's a beast. He's an animal. And totally. if, you, if you don't believe in the death penalty, you do, you don't, that dude doesn't deserve to breathe. He did it to Mandy. He tortured her and then slowly killed her uh, with the deep plunges. But the rest of them were superficial. Um, went around spending her money, you know, confronted by it, about it. He lies and says he got the debit card from a crackhead. And then they, they show his pictures of him. You know, at the ATM and shit, then it's like, oh, well, you know, change the story again and again. But then Jessica Chambers burned alive. Mandy tortured, stabbed, sliced over and over again. Most of them superficial to make her fear that he's going to do it. And he'd probably be like, okay, we'll give me the number. Once it works, then he's like, ah, oh, bitch, joke's on you. Stabs her a bunch more times. Just an animal, man. Yeah. And Psychopath. Here's kind of my little synopsis of that Jessica Chambers case. I think... A lot of the reason it got scorched like it did was because Jessica had kind of a sketchy history. I think if that would have been stand-up citizen in the community that everybody knew, it would have been worked completely differently. But to them, apparently that was just another dead and weed the, dealer or whatever. What's sad about that is, and I used to train all the detectives, you know, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter if you're a prostitute, drug dealer, crackhead, whatever. You somebody's son, somebody's daughter, somebody's brother and sister, someone's loved one. Granted, most of the homicides I've ever worked have been on what I call high-risk victims, right? I mean, yeah. who gets killed the most? Unfortunately, it's the people who are in the lifestyle, right? But it doesn't make their life any less important. And they scorched it the just unbelievable. Mandy would have never died had they done their job and got Quentin. Hundred uh, percent, and you know it's it's a lot of reason these serial killers go out and prey on prostitutes that's because right. nobody's gonna that's miss them. Nobody's gonna. Exactly. It's just another dead prostitute. Sean Vincent uh, Gillis here in Baton Rouge killed however many twenty or thirty whatever it was all prostitutes, and you're absolutely right. And then another prostitute goes missing. Mm, how hard are you gonna look into? It? Who, first of all, who's gonna report her missing? And yeah. when they do, uh, you know, I have one. I had a case um, 
this girl, we found her body in a ditch and it turned out an autopsy. Her neck was broken. Um, no ID and put her tattoos on the, on the news and somebody recognized it and called it in. She was in a lifestyle, right? That's how we ID'd her and I ended up getting a confession on it. But the deal being, if we hadn't run it on the news and, and the sister or whoever hadn't seen it, they, they didn't have a reporter. They were like, that's how she lived. She was always gone. She, we never knew she was coming in or not. And, and most of these people live hand to mouth like that and door to door, couch to couch, whatever it may be, chasing the next high and they get lost. Yeah. But they shouldn't. Is yeah. this one of the worst cases you've ever seen as far as shoddy police work? Just I, I, you, you know, It's not just the, the police work. Even the defense fucked up. The judge fucked up. The, the, every, everything in this case was just bad. This is as bad as anything I've ever seen from the law enforcement standpoint. Horrible. Have two hung juries. And uh, you know, like when the first jury comes back and, and the judge gave them the instructions, right? That if you've ever been in a courtroom for a judge to give jury instructions, they do it and they just go overkill and then they read them the law. And then you must be this and all 12, da, 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 or whatever. And everybody has to agree and understand. They go in, they come out, you reach the verdict. Yes, Your Honor, we have. What's your verdict? And they say it. And one guy says, oh, hold on, that, that wasn't my verdict. And they're like, what are you talking about? So they pulled them in and they were like, it was a mess up. Judge sends them back. They come back and they did it again. And, and it's, so it's a hung jury. I mean, I, I, this, even the even at the very beginning of the trial, the judge says, okay, I'm ready. Let's start the trial. Call your, call your first witness. He hadn't even sat the fucking jury. The jury was still back in the jury room. It was like, oh, shit, I, uh, we need a jury. I'm sorry. I mean, just everything about this case was horrible. Yeah. And I don't know if I mentioned on the podcast or not, but you know, Jessica's mama's dead now. You know, it's just just a calamity of errors and 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 Mandy um being from Taiwan, you know, naturally she doesn't have the big family, the vote here and all that, but at least Louisiana handled their business on this cat. I think all they have to do is go back and press Eric. Why would he flip on Quentin? Or Quinn's going to flip on Eric on Jessica's deal. It, yeah. But if they put the death penalty on the table, now that's hard to come and do for Panola County to come now and say, okay, now we come for death when they botched it up twice, right? But the flip side of that is Mississippi's probably waiting on Louisiana to handle their business. And once it, they he gets life in prison for Mandy's death, they may be like, well, life is life. Save the taxpayers some money and don't bring it back, which is sad for Jessica. Yeah, you know, dude needs to ride out. Doesn't deserve to breathe, in my opinion. Uh, I agree. And Eric too. Yeah. So. Yeah. What a case. Well, that's all the questions they had. Well, I appreciate y'all asking the questions. That was unsolicited and, and a little bit of real life, real crime style rambling. But the gentleman, I appreciate you coming on and uh, let's do this at the end of every season of Scorch Justice. I love it. And again, congratulations and congratulations to me. For you handling, <laughs> for you handling sports justice from now on, Vision Vision Podcast, handling it, uh, couldn't be prouder. Y'all, stay tuned. I think next week we will do a special drop of sports justice, in which I'm going to tell you which the next case is going to be, and it's going to piss a lot of people off, a lot of people, especially when I get to the end of the story. I don't even worry about pissing people. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> No, you don't worry about pissing them off. Yeah. <laughs> All right, y'all. Well, that, thank you so much. 
for listening to the first season of Sports Justice. I appreciate it and love each and every one of y'all. And that's it. I'm Woody Overton, your host of Sports Justice. Stay tuned for season two coming first week of July. Sports Justice is a production of Cloud 10 Media and Vision Podcast Productions. The executive producers are Cindy and Woody Overton and Sim Sarna for Cloud 10 Media. Jim Chapman is the supervising sound editor. The music is by Josh Cook. Artwork is by Brian Stefanik. Be sure to download, subscribe, and like Scorch Justice anywhere you can download a podcast. And follow me on Instagram at Scorch Justice or at Real Life Real Crime to hear what I have coming next. Thank you. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.